1: Tom Clark was a catcher in the big leagues for most of ten seasons, beginning in 1909, nine of those seasons with the Cincinnati Reds. One of his obituaries claims that after he left the Reds, he spent several seasons with the Yankees and Cubs, but that just goes to show how hard it was to keep track of ball players in the days before the encyclopedias, because... That wasn't true. It does make sense, though, that someone would think that he had gone to play in New York because he was from Queens in New York City. They called him the Duke of Corona when he played. And he did come back home and coach for the Giants after his playing career was over. He also had some kind of restaurant or coffee shop in Queens, the m M&M and Cafe. He lived above the business and eventually he'd die too young on the property. He was kind of a generic catcher in that, He didn't have much power, he didn't hit for great averages, but he still gave his team a little production at the plate because he generally hit eighth in front of the pitcher and was smart enough to accept that the opposition was trying to pitch around him. So he would grab a disproportionate number of walks and, although no one was thinking about this at the time, post a decent on-base percentage. One reporter during his time as a coach called him a profane but fascinating storyteller. Here's one example when he was not profane, but he was definitely dishonest. Clark claimed he was the personal catcher of Reds pitcher Pete Schneider, who had a short major league career before his arm fell off. Christy Mathewson was the Reds manager at this time during part of Schneider's career. And whereas all we hear about his Reds phase was his conflict with Hal Chase, he called out the first baseman for throwing games, He also found time to just destroy Pete Schneider. In 1917, Matthewson put Schneider out there for 46 games and 333 and two-thirds innings. He went 20-19 and with a 2.10 ERA, and that's a very good season, but he was never the same after. I know I've brought this up before, but it always fascinates me. Of the 16 teams who have been in business in the major leagues from 1900 onwards, no team— has had fewer pitchers win 20 games in a season than the Cincinnati Reds. I'm not referring now to how many total seasons of 20 wins they've had, but how many individual pitchers, while wearing Reds drag, have reached that threshold. So when I say, for example, that the A's, whether in Philadelphia or Oakland, have had 22 pitchers win 20 games, that's the number of different human beings who did it within that Lefty Grove did it seven times himself, and so did Gettysburg Eddie Plank, and Dave Stewart did it four times, and so on. I'm just using this as a broad measure of pitcher quality. Not all 20-win seasons are created equally, and some have been pretty mediocre. In a few minutes, I'm going to mention one by Lefty Gomez, when he won a ton of games, but with an ERA that was basically league average, and... With worse offensive support than Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, he probably would have broken even on the season something like 12-12. and Still, talking kind of generally, unscientifically, it is largely true that most 20-game winners have not been bad in the season in which they won 20. According to Baseball Reference, There have been 833 seasons of 20 or more wins since 1900. They range from Walter Johnson's 15-war season of 1913 to Christy Mathewson's 0.5-war season of 1914. We're going to talk about that in a second, too. On average, though, they've been worth about six war. The Yankees have had 34 different pitchers do it. That's the top. The Dodgers, Giants, and Cardinals have had 29 each. The Reds, who have just not cared about starting pitching for a lot of their history, and have oftentimes done very well without it, have had just 14 pitchers reach that 20-win mark in a season, and Schneider was one of the 14 and probably the most obscure, or one of the most obscure. I would like to give you a year or a date for the story that Clark told about him, but for reasons that will become obvious in just a second, I can't. So once again, Clark said he was Schneider's personal catcher. On a given day, again, don't know where on the calendar this dwelt. If you want, you can imagine it took place during the Babylonian exile. So about 600 BCE, Clark, Schneider's personal catcher, was out with a broken finger. It was Schneider's turn to pitch, but without his caddy, he didn't want to go. He went to Red's player manager, Buck Herzog, and told him, No way, I cannot pitch without Clark. And Herzog told him, basically, To shut up, and that he would go out and pitch with the backup catcher, Ivy Wingo, one of the great baseball names, Ivy Wingo, and he'd like it. Ivy would take care of him. So they do pitch, because what choice did Schneider have really? And he pitched a great game. But according to Clark, he wasn't aware of precisely how great it was, because according to the catcher, when he congratulated Schneider after, the pitcher said, Yeah, I appreciate it, but. No, I I would have done better if you had been back there. Better than a no-hitter? Clark asked. You mean? I imagine Schneider taking off his cap and scratching his head, because I guess he's not too bright. I didn't give up any hits at all? Nope, Clark confirms. And Schneider thinks it over, this is Clark's punchline, and says, well, I still think I'd have done better if you had been catching. Now, I can make this complicated, or I can make it simple, but... Maybe you've already spotted the problem with this story and why I can't put a date on it. The complicated version is that the four characters mentioned, Clark Schneider, Wingo, and Herzog, only overlapped with the Reds from 1915 to 16, but the game in question didn't happen then. So when did it happen? It didn't. Pete Schneider never pitched a no-hitter. So, yeah, great story. A total lie, but a great story. The actual reason, though that I started looking into Tommy Clark and noticed this fanciful tale of Pete Schneider is because I do sort of like another one of his stories in that I find it provocative. This is sort of a Bob Euchre kind of thing regarding his hitting against Christy Mathewson at the very beginning of his career and then later at the end of Christie's. He said, in fact, Clark, that he made his major league debut against Christy Mathewson and the Giants. On my first trip to the plate... I hit Maddie for two bases, and I didn't get another hit off of him for eight years. Then I hit him for three bases, and I said to him, Old boy, you're through. Seeing that story, I thought, wouldn't it be terrifying to have bookends on your life like that? For me, I think it would be the teachers I had while young who screamed at me and hit kids and said I'd never amount to anything showing up again and telling me that whatever I did have, I've now lost. But you know what? That story was a lie, too. Clark made his Major League debut against a Dodgers pitcher named Doc Scanlon. He did face Christie and hit a double in his ninth game. Maddie didn't pitch for another eight years, though. He pitched for another seven, and Clark didn't face him in his final season, in part because by then they were teammates. I do think he hit a double off of Christie about halfway through the year before. I don't have the play-by-play, but even given that, him joking... That Matthewson giving up a hit to him was showing that he, Christie, had lost it isn't funny because everyone knew that. He had won 24 games in 1914, but with an ERA way over league average, and in 1915 he just hit a wall going 8-14 and with a 3.58 ERA, and that ERA sounds okay by today's standards, but the NL average ERA was 2.75 that year. Last year, 2019, Glenn Sparkman went 4-11 and with a 6.02 ERA for the Royals. Matty, at 34, with over 45 innings behind him and experiencing back and arm problems, in fact, both his shoulders were troubling him that year, and he was pitching with a broken rib, had that kind of year. He had the Glenn Sparkman season. He didn't need anyone to tell him that he was having a Glenn Sparkman season. He knew And in fact, the next season, halfway through, when McGraw traded him to Cincinnati so he could manage, McGraw said quite publicly, I'm doing this because he wants to manage. I'm happy to oblige him in that way. And I'm convinced his pitching days are over. That's a quote. He just said it flat out. And I find Clark compelling because he was someone who was part of the major league scene for about 15 years combined as a player and coach and he was a quality player as part-time catchers go but even though there are plenty of players from 100 years ago he hung it up about 1917 1918 that we still talk about today he's pretty much faded from the tapestry but more than that i think he knew he would fade and that gave him an excuse to elevate himself as a raconteur at the expense of someone else's pain. We sometimes set very low bars for ourselves insofar as how we treat other people, what we allow ourselves to say, because we like the effect on us and we don't consider how our words will impact somebody else. I'm being self-deprecating, so it's okay for me to deprecate you while I'm doing it. I'm Stephen Goldman. Tom Clark hit 37 lifetime triples. Despite his story which he tended to repeat. He never hit a triple off of Christy Mathewson. They were contemporaries, but they weren't really in each other's stories in a real way. Clark wasn't even a footnote in Mathewson's story, but he lacked the confidence to know that he wouldn't be a footnote in his own, and so he inserted himself into the tale of the more accomplished player, not realizing that everyone is worthy of their own entry... In the annals of the infinite inning. A few moments ago, I referred to the Babylonian captivity. I hope your own captivity is going well. Some of us who hadn't yet been in captivity have headed there, finally... This week, it is painful but necessary. Some of us were out and are going back in. That's almost The Godfather 3, if that were about a pandemic. I am not going to try to do an Al Pacino impression. You guys know I'm not very good at voices by now. You know the line I'm talking about, though. It's the only one in the picture anybody ever quotes. I do very much hope that wherever in this world you dwell, and we have listeners not just from all over the country, but from other parts of the world that you are safe and healthy, taking all adequate precautions, and that this great plague has not touched your life in other than inconveniences and the kind of existential dread that I think a lot of us are feeling. If you will forgive me one example, the other night I was unable to sleep, as often I am unable to sleep, and I was, I think I saw someone else use this term And so all credit to them. I don't think I'm making it up dread scrolling, which is looking through the news for just some morsel, which only keeps you more awake once you find it or the search for it will keep you awake. It's like Casey Stengel said about players breaking curfew, staying up all night trying to find a woman to hook up with, that if you have to look for it for that long, it's probably not going to be good once you get it. And it was, no exaggeration, probably thirty, four o'clock in the morning. And I know that looking at your phone at times like that, in a physical sense, isn't the smartest thing for you to do if you want to get to sleep, but I do it all the time anyway. And I found... Some interview with a doctor, I would tell you who it was, but he said something like, I really don't expect life to approach normality until summer 2022. And I had a moment of real panic, almost an anxiety attack. Not a full one. I know what those feel like. And fortunately, I've got those under control. But I had this terrible urge to get dressed and get in the car and get out now. There's nowhere to go. There'd be nowhere to go at four in the afternoon, never mind four in the morning. But I suddenly felt incredibly claustrophobic, as if all these months of mostly staying inside and not having a social existence, except for through this microphone in various ways, it all came crashing down on me. And the idea that we would have to go through another. 24 months, like some crazy amount of time just broke me for a minute. And I I finally did fall asleep and I, I felt better the next day and I feel a little more philosophical about it. But wow, I mean, this this has been a hard thing to go through. And I do have some a little bit of hostility for the populations that have resisted going through this. Because in Europe, they're done, or mostly done, and hopefully they stay done. And we could have been done, too, and enjoying most of a baseball season already. And, well, you know where this goes. This week, we go a little off the standard sports track, because it ain't back yet, for a conversation with Dr. Jennifer Earle, professor of sociology, government, and public policy at the University of Arizona. Her specialty is the internet and protest. I sought her out because I'm of an age where roughly half my life was lived prior to the internet and half so far during. That makes me very aware of the pace of life before the personal computer, the laptop, the cell phone, the internet and the pace now. And I sometimes wonder if we've become a little bit deranged by that. And I also wonder how that perception would be different for people who have now led all of their lives, everyone in their 30s and younger, I would think, within the internet era. As with so many conversations on this program, I allowed the discussion to flow where it wanted to, and so we covered a great deal of ground around that premise, including, and this surprised me, I wasn't expecting this, it goes towards the title of this week's show, how the internet can sometimes make fighting for change kind of playful. And look, kids, I know this is less squarely on baseball or history than usual, but it goes to the way we live now, and baseball is certainly in that world, and I felt confident that you would go with me on that journey as I indulged my curiosity a bit, and I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I sound like Bill Cosby. Learn a thing or two before it's done, okay? Don't hold that against me, please. I ain't like him. Two notes on the conversation about halfway through... I brought up the online organization Sleeping Giants, which tries to publicize companies that advertise on racist platforms. And I said that Sleeping Giants was the product of one guy. About the day after I said that, it turned out that the impression that I had that there is only one guy was just because the one guy wanted me to think that. And there was also a woman who was leaving specifically for that Reason, So I apologize to her and I apologize to you for getting that wrong. I am now better educated. In addition, at the very end, we briefly touched on the Trump administration policy that would have seen foreign nationals who are students in this country lose their right to be here in the case of their colleges going to full remote schedules due to the virus. Because of massive protest around that and a bunch of lawsuits by the states, that policy has since been Rescinded, glory, hallelujah. It's so strange to have something like a win. It's been a long time since I've had that feeling about anything. I feel almost as if I'm a character in the old Lone Ranger TV show living on some homestead where the rustlers are trying to steal all the horses, and this just happens over and over again for a year. You wake up every morning, somebody pistol whips you and steals your best horse, and then finally the Lone Ranger shows up and takes care of the problem. And you're just so used to it. You're so used to this miserable feeling every day that when the odd thing goes right, it is like that kind of not deus ex machina, vigilante ex machina, lone ranger ex machina. I don't know the right term for it, but it is a weird, strange feeling. We have been down for so long that up feels strange and unfamiliar I should note that Lincoln Mitchell, Craig Kalkaterra, Frank Garrity, Tova Wang, and I are doing another Say It Ain't Contagious Zoom panel on Wednesday evening, July 22nd, 7 p.m. Eastern. Just like the last one, it's free. We are also giving away a code, a coupon code, for discounted BP subscriptions. If you subscribe to Baseball Prospectus, you'll get a month free. It was so good to see some of your faces last time, probably less so for you to see mine. But I hope even more of you will come out and chat with us and hear us try to figure out just how the season reopening is going to work. It will happen the day after. And also how all the social upheaval we've experienced of late is going to be reflected in the game. Again, that's Wednesday, July 22nd, 7 p.m. And you can RSVP, this is how we avoid Zoom bombings, to Lincoln at lincolnmitchell.com before dr earl joins us i have one other tale to tell this one actually provoked by the ordeal of being on the zoom panels and seeing myself on camera for an hour at a time but as always let's pause here for a quick break first gather our forces around us collect our wits gird our loins and i'll see you on the other side for a tale of a pitcher who just couldn't gain weight I suppose the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence or under the shorter set of suspenders, but I have never in my life heard the words, buddy, you're too skinny. You've got to fatten up. What I have heard rather upsettingly is you're getting to look like Uncle Milton. Milton was my great uncle who from middle age on was the approximate size, shape, and perhaps even color of the City Field home run apple. I figure I have several advantages on old Uncle Milton. I don't smoke. I watch my diet in terms of its chemical content. I've never been exposed to radioactive fallout, and I try to have more butter lettuce than butter cookies. But still, it's not very pleasant to hear. Lefty Gomez, Vernon Gomez, was added to the Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee in 1975. He's a good example of the kind of pitcher who should be in there, but often is not because the voters give huge deference to players who had big career statistics over any other qualifications. Gomez's story is a bit like David Cohn's. He had a high peak. He was the number one or two pitcher on many good teams. He pitched on seven World Series winners. In those World Series, he went 6-0 with a 2.86 ERA, which is an accomplishment no matter the era. He won over 20 games four times, earned three strikeout titles, and two ERA titles. He was also a witty, popular player who liked to tell Self-denigrating stories about his baseball skills. His arm more or less gave out at 30, so he won only 189 games. Cone won 194, but length isn't the only measure of a man. Yeah, I said it. Get your head out of the gutter. We all have gifts to various extents, but it's how you use them that counts. A lot of his stories tend to involve him boasting of how great he is and then being deflated by someone else. I like this version he told on himself because, and again, he's telling it, but it makes him look kind of generous, and Phil Rizzuto did confirm that Gomez was very kind to him when he was young. Phil Rizzuto was a rookie shortstop in 1941 when Gomez was in the 12th year of his major league career. He was very near the end, and back then it was traditional for veterans to freeze the kids out because... A kid might take your job. Depending on the year, there were only 399 like your job in the whole world, even fewer if you're a position player. I mean, think about it. Teams don't carry extra first basemen usually. Even if you have a platoon going on, well, you have 16 starters and then... A few platoon partners, that's a really competitive position to be in. By comparison, there are very few podcasters, so I feel safe. Gomez was one of the first to break the ice with the young Rizzuto and make him feel part of the team. And I don't know if this story is true, but the way Gomez told it, the first time that Rizzuto played in his hometown, which was New York City, he was from Brooklyn, was... In the annual city series between the Yankees and the Dodgers, this was the kind of thing they did back when New York had multiple teams. They'd stage these exhibitions. Now that there's only the Yankees, that's impossible. But the Dodgers were a very good team. You did catch the Mets. I feel like I have to underscore this. You did catch the little slap at the Mets there. Sorry. All in good fun. Love the Mets. The Dodgers were a really good team that year. They would win 100 games and go to the World Series. Well, in this exhibition game, they loaded the bases against Gomez. And there are a lot of stories about odd things he would do when he was in trouble or he was up against a good hitter. One of my favorite stories in all of baseball history, and no doubt you've heard this one or a variant on it, is the Yankees are playing the A's or the Red Sox, and Gomez is in trouble with runners on and Jimmy Fox at the plate. Big power hitter, one of the all-time greats. Bill Dickey calls for a pitch. Gomez shakes him off. Dickey calls for another pitch. Gomez shakes his head again. Dickey tries one more. Nope. Dickey goes through every pitch Gomez has twice. No, no, no. Finally, Dickey jogs out to the mound. What do you want to throw him? Dickey says in exasperation. Nothing, Gomez says. I'm hoping that if we keep delaying, he'll get bored and go away. And Gomez wasn't just being silly, by the way. Fox hit 338. 4.67, 7.38 four hundred sixty seven, seven thirty eight against him lifetime in a substantial number of plate appearances. Hoping he would go away might have been his best option. So back to that game in nineteen forty one. The bases are loaded and Gomez calls Rizzuto, this kid, out to the mound. What do you what do you what do you want? Rizzuto asks or something like that. Nothing, Gomez says I just want to talk for a bit. Here? Now? Listen, I'm supposed to be a shortstop right now. The the manager, he put me there, you know. I feel like I ought to be there. No, no, stay, Gomez says. There aren't going to be any plays to make it short until I start pitching again, so you're not going to miss anything there by being here. But I... I, And Rizzuto starts backing away. Gomez stops him. Hey, is your mother here in the stands? Yeah, she, she is. But what does that have to do with any... Can you imagine... What she's thinking now, what she's saying to people in the seats around her, the first time the great Gomez gets in trouble, who does he ask for advice but my boy, Phil? And Rizzuto says, I'm going back to shortstop. Gomez had established himself as a prospect pitching for the San Francisco Seals of the Pacific Coast League. Some Yankee scout must have filed a positive report for the team to sign him, but When he reported to his first major league camp, all he heard about was his weight, how little of it there was. In Gomez's own words, when I joined the club in 1930, I was six feet, one and a half inches, and I weighed 150 pounds. You know, I was something of a disappointment to McCarthy from the first time he saw me. I mean, they had spent all that money for a power-throwing left-hander, and then I showed up and all I was was tall and skinny. He was always after me to put on weight. He was talking about manager Joe McCarthy, but his memory, this was long after his career was over, had condensed a few years and people. Because McCarthy wasn't the manager his rookie year, it was the ex-pitcher Sailor Bob Shockey, and it was less Shockey pushing him to gain weight than it was general manager Ed Barrow and owner Jacob Rupert. And how they went about accomplishing that was pretty barbaric. An accident gave them the opportunity to play witch doctor with the kid pitcher Gomez pitched his way onto the Major League roster in camp, his very first camp, but his New York debut was delayed because during a March exhibition game against the Cardinals, a line drive hit him in the mouth and broke a few teeth. I have tried like crazy to find a newspaper report of that incident, and if anyone wrote it up, I haven't seen it. I know the exact date, or at least the supposed exact date, but no one commented on that. Deadlines were such back then that post-game comments were not a big part of stories and sometimes things seem to get lost between the end of one game and filing the story on the next. We know it happened, though, because the aftermath was pretty thoroughly documented. In the short term, he had caps put on his front teeth, and about two weeks after the season started, he got into his first game, taking the loss in relief of Tom Zachary against the Senators. In addition to Gomez himself, by the way, there were eight future Hall of Famers on the field that day between the two teams, including Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, so a pretty memorable icebreaker. But Gomez did not pitch well that day, and he mostly didn't pitch well at all. Even in games when he got decent results, batters were just blasting balls into the stands. Partially, that was because this was 1930, and the ball was as juiced as at any time prior to the present day, if not more so, but there was also a more conventional reason which was that he had very good velocity at this point, but his off-speed stuff was way behind it in quality. One writer noted his curve couldn't be detected with a chemist's microscope. It seems reasonable to infer that batters learned to sit on his fastball. In a stretch of six appearances from May 5th to June 4th, spanning 39.1 innings, he gave up 10 home runs with opposing hitters slugging 514 Among those launching balls into the stands were Charlie Geringer, Fetz Fothergill, Al Simmons, and Goose Goslin three times in two different games, and also Joe Judge and Ski Melillo twice each. Ski was a terrible hitter, a career 60 OPS plus guy, so it really says something. He had 22 home runs in a 12-year career. Parenthetically, it is through Gomez and through this kind of pitching by him that the term gopher ball is entered the baseball lexicon. I'm not sure if it was that exact year, but Gomez kept telling the writers he was perfecting a new pitch, a gopher ball. What do you mean by gopher ball? A writer asked. Oh, you know, Gomez says, you see it go for two, go for three. It caught on. Both the Yankees and the writers around them were looking at Gomez and trying to figure out how a kid with such great stuff could be knocked around so easily. And, It's pretty easy to see where their obsessions lay. Here are just a few descriptions of Gomez as a rookie I found without looking too hard. Skinny, scraggy, willowy, narrow, slim, and non-communicative Californian. That one was way off. Maybe it was true at the moment, but as we've already demonstrated, soon all Gomez did was talk. Within a few years, the New York Times was referring to him as the life of the party and a sparkling wit. The Yankees came up with a plan, as one beat writer put it, Senor Gomez is the only player in the entire history of baseball who ever was commanded to eat more for fattening purposes. He did not, however, accumulate so much as a single ounce during the costly process. Gomez spent the rest of his life making jokes about this, usually a variant on how much whole milk he was made to drink. I drank so much milk I couldn't walk by a cow without bleeding, that kind of thing. But... As the reporter indicated, he did not gain any weight. This was a time when so little was understood about pitcher's arms or player health or metabolic processes that it was very common. It sounds ridiculous to say it, but teams would say, his shoulder hurts? Well, take out his tonsils then. And if that doesn't work, it must be his appendix. Just keep subtracting things until he gets better. It's like a game of operation. And this culminates, for me... Much later, in the late 50s and early 60s, when Johnny Sane is a Yankees pitching coach, not just with the Yankees, actually all over, and his solution was his arm hurts, zap it with x-rays. He really did believe in radiation therapy for muscle soreness, and I've said this before, and it's probably irresponsible for me to say, but when you look at pitchers who were under Sane's tutelage with various teams, you can make what seems like a cancer cluster out of it. Well, Gomez was more fortunate than that. Nobody said... Well, his command seems a bit off and his off-speed stuff is weak. What if we put him at ground zero during the Trinity tests, the Manhattan Project, and see how that works out? Fortunately, that wouldn't be for another dozen years or so. No, their solution was comparatively benign. They blamed the broken teeth. Rupert was told that the dentist who capped my teeth didn't drain the pus first, Gomez said. And I didn't gain weight because my body was waging a losing battle with the poisoned pus draining from my abscessed teeth into my bloodstream. This is as good a place as any to acknowledge that, as with all these stories, these quotes come from a variety of places. Primary sources like newspapers, secondary sources like books. I'm not sure how you classify my brain and my memory from a lifetime of studying this stuff, but some of it's from there, too. That last one came from Lefty, an American odyssey, which was written by Gomez's daughter. Lefty himself went to the Celestial Hall of Fame in 1989. John Kieran of the New York Times wrote up the way the Yankees decided that something had to be done about Gomez's mouth. He was called in as a relief pitcher one day at the stadium. The previous pitcher had lost control. Sending Vernon to the rescue of a pitcher who had lost control was like rushing a supply of gasoline to a blazing house. Before they could drag him off the mound, he had handed out four or five passes in a row. The very next day, the Yankee authorities sent him to a dentist, and the dentist neatly removed all his teeth. Colonel Rupert didn't issue any formal statement, nor did Bob Shockey say, let that be a lesson to you, but Gomez is still suspicious and doubtless will warn newcomers on the Yankees pitching staff to beware of wildness if they value their teeth. Now, as with many Kieran columns, there's an element of the truth in that, but a lot of it is better than the truth. It didn't happen that way. Gomez did twice walk five batters in a game his rookie year, but one of those occasions was in a complete game win, the other in a six-inning start, nor did he ever walk that many batters consecutively. Broadly speaking, though, it is true that Gomez pitched badly, and the Yankees reacted by depriving him of all of his God-given teeth, as Richard Vidmer of the New York Herald Tribune put it, Gomez lost nine in a row yesterday, but they were all teeth, not ball games. This cost the Yankees, just for the prosthetics alone, the replacement teeth, $1,500, which doesn't sound like an insane amount of money for that kind of procedure today, but consider that Gomez's salary as a rookie was $2,700 for the full year. He was a very valuable man, as evidenced, by how much money the Yankees invested in dental prosthetics. It probably won't surprise you to learn that Gomez didn't pitch any better with no teeth, and he definitely didn't gain any weight because he was in too much pain to eat. Here are some other ways writers referred to Gomez that year. A young pitcher of hot Spanish blood. A high-priced Spanish southpaw. The hatless Hidalgo, I like that one a lot, who, parenthetically, wore a Castilian cape, and after the dental work, they called him the left-handed and toothless Caballero of the Sierras. Gomez hung on until July, and then the Yankees sent him down. Gomez explained it as not a result of his pitching poorly in general, but as part of a specific game, again, blaming Joe McCarthy. I was pitching with runners on second and third. So I went into a long windup. The guy on third stole home, and the guy on second stole third. Then I went into another long windup, and the guy on third stole home. Before I could take the third long windup, I was on a train headed for St. Paul. That was another thing that didn't exactly happen either, although maybe he was talking about the second game of a doubleheader with the White Sox at Yankee Stadium, a contest the Yankees lost 15 4. The game was actually notable because it's one of the great single game performances in White Sox history. Outfielder Carl Reynolds, who Bill Dickey would later punch in the face and shatter his jaw, went five for six with three home runs in three consecutive innings, generating eight runs batted in and a stolen base. And that's still tied for the most RBI in one White Sox game. One aspect of Reynolds' performance that I promise will never be duplicated is that two of the three shots were pulled to Yankee Stadium's immense Death Valley, where the fences were actually out in the Atlantic Ocean and two of them, they went for inside-the-park home runs. Gomez didn't give up any of those home runs. He did come on in relief and give up two stolen bases, but he and Bill Dickey also caught two runners, including the ones he mentioned, who tried to steal third and home. All those steal attempts came with the White Sox up 12-4, to by the way, which is against baseball etiquette, and yes, Gomez hit the leadoff batter in the next inning. The big emotional outcome for the game, though, from the Yankees' side was not about the stolen bases, but it was that when Babe Ruth jumped to try to catch Reynolds' second drive at the wall, the one that actually went out of the park, he caught the third finger on his left hand in the screen atop the fence and just ripped a fingernail right off. And it was thought that he'd be out seven to ten days. He actually came back pretty quickly, but in the moment it seemed like a pretty serious injury. Again, this has nothing to do with Gomez exactly, except that the line drive he stopped with his mouth did not really get reported. Most papers who covered this injury to Ruth just gave it very matter-of-factly. He tore a fingernail, and it was bandaged, and he seemed to be in a lot of discomfort. One of them had pictures of him coming off the field, holding the hand. But one paper went into detail about what happened in the clubhouse that other players had to hold him down because the trainer was trying to give him morphine or laughing gas or, or both, actually, so that he could extricate, remove, yank what was left of the fingernail so there were no infections and he could clean it up. And I guess as they were sedating Ruth, Ruth had some kind of anxiety attack and just started lashing out, punching and kicking, and I think Tony Lazeri was mentioned having to lean on him a couple of other players too. And after it was over, when Ruth had come out of it, he hadn't remembered what had happened at all, losing it, that is. It's a very dramatic scene, and it would seem like, given based on some quotes within that one story, that the other writers had a similar amount of access that they witnessed this happening to, but not all of them reported it. And I don't know if the one who did was violating some kind of unwritten rule about privacy or simply that the others or their editors didn't consider it newsworthy or interesting. But I sure as heck found it interesting. Gomez wasn't sent down after that game with all of the stolen base attempts despite the big lead. He was sent down three games later after more relief appearances, two out of three of which he was hit pretty hard in. And while he was down at St. Paul, he did start to master some off-speed pitches, and the next year he got much better. So much better that he went 21-9 and with a 2.67 ERA, and in his third season, he went 24-7. and Although it wasn't really a great year, his ERA was only about league average. Would you believe, though, that in spite of all this winning, the Yankees still wouldn't let go of the weight thing? Son, they told me, Gomez said. If you weighed 20 pounds more, what a pitcher you could be. I was the bashful type. Since they hadn't noticed it for themselves, I didn't like to call attention to the fact that I was a rookie who'd won 45 games for them in his first two full years. I put on about 18 pounds. In the spring, Ed Barrow told me, Now it cost us $1,200 to keep you on that health farm, so don't be losing any of that weight. Take it easy. Down in St. Petersburg, this is spring training, I'm sitting down, Following orders, and Joe McCarthy hollers at me, Gomez, you think this is a rest home? Get out there and run! Okay, now I'm running. I'm running, and I'm running, and I run past where Colonel Rupert is sitting with Ed Barrow. Hey, Gomez, they hollered. All that money we spent building you up? Sit down! Run, says McCarthy. Yes, sir. Sit down, says Barrow. Yes, sir. They built me up into a 16-game winner. Later on, you'd see headlines like, Gomez dons uniform bursting with pride in his extra weight, followed by Gomez seeks return to skinny nervous state, blaming weight increase for pay shrinkage. Which is to say, as he pointed out, that once he finally succeeded in gaining a few pounds, the Yankees cut his salary because he won fewer games. He actually pitched much better winning 16 than he did winning 24, but that's not how they reckoned things then. I don't want to be insensitive to people who have trouble keeping their weight on. I know that that can be a serious problem as well. All metabolic problems are. And one man's carbohydrate storage problem that expresses itself in a body entirely willing to pack ever more pounds in there may not be the same as someone else's carbohydrate storage problem, which is that his or her body won't store them at all. Nevertheless, in this case, I reserve the right to wish I could be more like Lefty, particularly when I have family, friends, and children who insist on bringing me to the dessert buffet. Maybe the one good outcome, for me at least, of the coronavirus pandemic is that buffets have been abolished for the duration, so no opportunity to do that. One other thing, and... This dovetails with the Tom Clark story from today's first segment. Towards the end of his career, the longtime Yankees coach Art Fletcher teased him about his declining stuff, saying, throw harder, Lefty. Gomez said, harder? I'm throwing twice as hard, but they're going half as fast. And that, it seems to me, is the story of all our lives. But it was Lefty saying it, so unlike with Tom Clark and Christy Mathewson, I think it's okay. It sure would be nice, though, just once, to have somebody make a thin joke about you. I guess it would be nice to be an internationally famous swimsuit supermodel, too, but I'm not going to count on that happening anytime soon, if ever. And if there's a moral to the story beyond that, perhaps it's that, thank goodness, players now have a collectively bargained right to seek a second opinion, so if they have a headache, a club doesn't send them for a lobotomy, or they don't try to cure their hamstring pull by having their buttocks surgically amputated. And with that, I have said my piece for this week. I'll be right back after this break with Dr. Jennifer Earle. I'll see you on the other side. My next guest is a professor of sociology, as well as government and public policy at the University of Arizona. Her research focuses on social movements and the sociology of law, with an emphasis, among other things, on the Internet and social movements. She's also the co-author of Digitally Enabled Social Change, Activism in the Internet Age. She's Dr. Jennifer Earle. How are you, Jennifer?
5: I'm great. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thank you for doing this. And before we get to the topic at hand, Arizona has seen a steep rise in coronavirus cases recently. What is your perspective on the pandemic as someone who lives and works in the state?
5: Wow. Um, well, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely scary. I actually was on sabbatical this year, and so I was supposed to be in Florence, Italy uh, at an institute that focuses on social movements in the month of April and May. Um, obviously, that trip got canceled. And many of my friends and colleagues in Italy were shut in their homes, riding out what was then, you know, a huge surge in Italy. And I had colleagues in Spain who then were riding that out in Spain. And now to look at graphics, seeing both where Arizona is uh, in relationship to the height of the epidemic in any EU countries, and to see where the U.S. is overall, um, it's just—it's really quite scary.
1: Has your institution decided how it is going to treat in-person classes in the fall?
5: I don't want to speak on on behalf of my institution. I mean, I've been on sabbatical, so uh, I'm I'm sort of in touch with what's going on, but not as much as I might be regularly. Um, I don't believe that an official position has been taken yet, in part because, you know, the facts are changing all the time. So what might have seemed appropriate in March wouldn't seem appropriate now, might not seem appropriate in a few weeks. So I don't think that that is fully worked out, although I think that the desire on the administration's part is to have some in-person classes and they've, I understand, set some benchmarks for... Uh, specific percentages of classes. I don't know how realistic or unrealistic that is because uh, as a faculty member, I certainly don't want to be at risk of either transmitting the virus to my students when I'm speaking, nor do I want to be at risk of bringing that home with me, both for myself and and people in my uh, household. So obviously, if this is going to happen, it has to be done in a really safe way, and so I'm waiting to hear what those plans might be.
1: I've seen some professors say at schools that have said, well, we're going to have a reduced number of people in the classroom, but then you're also going to be teaching people online. They felt like if that were the case, they couldn't do a satisfactory job. They had to focus on one group or the other. As someone whose work is so involved with the internet, it's sort of ironic if that would be a handicap for you, too.
5: Well, you know, when you teach classes online, lots of things change. It's not just taking the same content. Like I've been teaching in a classroom for about 20 years. That means I'm really good at looking around and assessing how much my students are understanding by the looks on their faces, what else they're doing, how many of them are doodling, whether I make a joke and I see smirks or I see tuned out looks. So, you know... With 20 years of in-person teaching experience, I'm really good at at speeding up when I can tell my class is getting something and slowing down or giving more examples when I can tell my class is struggling with something. And you have to figure out how do you translate those teaching skills that were really optimized for face-to-face contact into an online environment where you know, people people look very different on Zoom, right? Um, Right. And I think there's other issues that universities are are not even really fully tackling yet that as a faculty member concern me. So for instance, for many universities, they have intellectual property rights that basically say my instructional material is their instructional material. And so if I for instance, videotape a lecture, under many universities, and I believe under my own universities, intellectual property uh, rules, that lectures their property to license, reuse, redistribute as they see fit. And that, to me, raises some concerns. Because if you were talking about a few faculty members who were opting into online teaching, and knew that policy and were okay with it. That's one thing. If you're talking about an entire university's course load going online in the fall at the same time, that's just a massive capture of intellectual property by universities and would honestly allow universities to do things that might be objectionable. For instance, if you record a bunch of lectures from a temporary adjunct lecturer, you may decide that you as a university could offer that class without them just paying graders. (laughs) And under many intellectual property regulations at universities, the universities would be within their powers to do that. So if I were an adjunct faculty member, not a tenured faculty member, I'd be really worried about that. But even as a tenured faculty member, I would worry about the ability of my university to license Uh, For instance, a lecture that I gave to another university or to a consulting program or to use it if I separated from U of A and went to another university to still be able to use that content. So there are industries that have different ways of thinking about intellectual property. For instance, royalty-based industries um, like screenwriting or, or performance, but we've never been in a moment where you know, for some universities, almost 100% of their content was going to be captured online as courses with full lectures. It's a whole new world. So there's a range of concerns, whether you're talking about trying to have face-to-face classes where the concerns are about health and safety. And when you're talking about online classes, there's both issues of being able to translate your optimized teaching skills for face-to-face classes into an online environment, but also intellectual property questions about what's that do when all of a sudden universities have all of their coursework and kind of don't need instructors in the same way? Will universities all act responsibly with that content or not?
1: And will consumers, it it didn't occur to me until now, as you say this, that if an entire semester offerings of all courses more or less are placed online someone could bootleg an education the same way they would a led zeppelin album
5: yeah i mean i think for me as an instructor i'm less worried about people bootlegging learning because they can't bootleg the credential at the same time and i'm more worried about what that would mean for the creation of test banks so like as an instructor you know you would think college professors are obsessed with you know all these high-minded things, but lots of times we're like actually obsessed with how do we make our classrooms fair so that if there are test banks in teams, in uh, sororities or fraternities, in other social groups, um, how can we make sure that students who don't have access to those test banks have the same capacity to get an A or a B or whatever grade reflects their effort and learning In the class. And so, for instance, I have a policy against recording any material in my classroom because I don't want people who aren't coming to class uh, to be able to sort of phone it in and still test well. I have real strict rules about tests not leaving my classroom uh, so that test banks can't be made of my test questions. And all of those things have to be rethought when all of a sudden I'm going to have to you know, put online an entire test. That's going to have impacts on classes for years.
1: This is fascinating. And among a myriad of issues raised by reopening that we could spend the whole discussion on, but I want to talk about your specialty. And to just begin with kind of a, a broad question, it often seems that there isn't enough discussion of the way the internet has changed how we interrelate and affiliate with each other. And I know there's digital anthropology and sociology in academic circles, but I don't know how much of that work has reached the popular consciousness in terms of the dividing line between life before and life during the internet. Insofar as the public goes, is there a sufficient appreciation of the way the fabric of human interaction has been altered by the Internet?
5: That's a tough question in the sense that I think, as uh, probably many other sociology professors would attest, people often feel that they're expert observers of their life and (laughs) therefore get pretty committed to perspectives they have developed. Um, But one of the things that differentiates social science from like let's say the casual observation I do in my own life is that my job as a social scientist is to have a a suspicion that something is true and then come up with about a million ways that that could be not true. (laughs) And then actually my job (laughs) is to go out and look for evidence that says that what I thought was true is in fact not true. And I might, you know, also work to uncover evidence that says that what I think is going on is true But it's really a fundamental part of my job to try to get up every morning and prove myself wrong. No one told me that was going to be in the job description, but it's a (laughs) fundamental part of my job. And so I think in one sense, people have a sort of everyday sense of the differences maybe between if if they're not digital natives, between their experience of the world and the experience of digital natives of the world. So, you know, lots of jokes which I've made too about like I'm over 40 so I can call someone. (laughs) I might prefer to actually have a phone conversation as opposed to text message about something that would be decidedly different than someone who's maybe 20 years younger than I am. But that doesn't mean that we all carry those observational skills that are really about um, looking deeply, trying to disconfirm beliefs, trying to see if we may be wrong into those observations. And so there are often ways, both here and in lots of other places in life, we make observational errors that we don't realize and the internet's no different. An example I like to give, and I'll tell you it here just because I, I think it will probably resonate with a lot of people who are trying to understand what I'm saying, is that like if you think about uh, an argument you may have had with a, a girlfriend, boyfriend, partner, spouse of yours, it's real easy if you're you know ticked off with them about not uh, cleaning up their own dishes. You notice every single time they don't do a dish. And then what do they say? You didn't notice the times that I did put up the dishes. (laughs) That argument about noticing what fits your views and not noticing things that don't fit your views is a, a, a fundamental insight into the whole architecture of research methods that social scientists have developed to try to make sure that we understand every time the dishes have been done, <laughs> not just the time that, that fit with our our views. So back to the internet, I would say, you know, people have some casual observations that are probably roughly right. Like there probably is a real age difference between, or in preferences for phone calls versus texting. But then once you get into the nuance of how digital life is working, people may have misperceptions or may not even be aware of all of the digital things that are operating around them.
1: So let's talk about social movements and activism. Until fairly recently, if I had a cause, maybe I could write a letter to the editor of my local newspaper. But there weren't a lot of ways for the average person to mobilize a large number of people, certainly not quickly. It would take years of investment in creating a network of associations. I mean, in the real world, whether by phone call or letter. But I could go on Twitter right now and say something. And if it resonated with enough people, maybe we have movement in a day or an hour. Is that an exaggeration or do we see that happen?
5: You know, you've landed on exactly a fundamental point that my co-author Katrina Kimport and I make in Digitally Enabled Social Change. You're exactly right that activism has been something, participation in social movements, the organization of social movements, has been something that has been really expensive And I don't mean just expensive in terms of money, like the amount of personnel that are required to do that. But I mean, in terms of time, in terms of lots of other kinds of resources. But you're right that there are internet technologies, digital and social media, that when used in innovative ways can cut down those costs for starting and engaging in activism so really levels that we've never historically seen. And that changes a whole host of dynamics that happen in social movements. It changes, for instance, who are likely to be leaders of movements. It changes the range of things that might be organized around in movements. It changes how important organizations are to movements. It changes how much how important fundraising is to movements. So that the one switch that you precisely focused on about your ability to go on and sort of start something yourself does have a whole host of consequences that are really radical and revolutionary for the ability of grassroots activism. I will point out that that doesn't mean, you know, so here's a nod to people who maybe thought that digitally enabled social change went too far. Um, You know, it is true that lots of people still pursue change through social movement organizations and traditional social movement organizations i mean i wrote you know i co-wrote digitally enabled social change and i'll tell you i still donate to lots of um (laughs) traditional social movement organizations and there are a whole host of reasons to do that so it's not that digital activism your ability to hop online means those things cease to exist but it means that you have another new channel through which to pursue those things. The other thing I'll say about that is that there is a real large debate over whether or not organizations or those sort of traditional gatekeepers for the organization of activism are really important to influencing publicity. So let's think about like a a petition on change.org. That's a website where you could go on right now and make a petition about something that you were concerned about and you could work your networks to try to get signatures for that. But if change.org thinks that it's an important petition and they decide through their own internal decision-making process that they want to help you out, they can actually really boost your odds of having a lot of signatures by helping to promote that through their networks on their website, etc. So I would say you're exactly right that it has changed a lot of things, but with the caveat that that doesn't mean that those other ways of organizing go away or that they don't help to augment publicity.
1: Well, the really interesting thing about that, and I'm sure you remember this book, although the author is escaping me just now, but about 20 years ago, I would say this book came out called Bullying Alone. and the thesis of that book was that we used to be more social. We used to join organizations like the Rotary Club or the Elks or the Lions. And at that moment, those organizations were in decline. So what is going to replace these ligaments of our social lives? And the answer is this, what we've been discussing, the Internet. But the difference, and I I think you're getting at this in a way, and you, you talked about the word leadership. The thing that I'm not clear on is if we do have that moment if we do get the petition promoted my cause whatever it is it doesn't necessarily have a leader it doesn't have a board it doesn't have financing so how often does a social media uprising actually get translated into actual impact on the outside world
5: so the book you're thinking about is uh robert putnam's bowling alone and you know gosh we could have a whole podcast just on thoughts about um bowling alone because one <laughs> of the things that i study is youth engagement and putnam's book set off a a real almost a, a sort of decade of hand ringing about whether or not youth were increasingly apathetic or disengaged. And a whole host of research since then has shown actually no youth are just differently engaged. And so Putnam had looked at, and many other people who were concerned about disengagement, had looked at real traditional forms of engagement, like voting, which I don't want to at all appear to say is unimportant, but to assume that it's the only way to engage a political system isn't empirically accurate. And so subsequent research has shown that maybe young people are more likely to engage in other forms of political participation. And what will be interesting to see is whether recent upsurges in youth voting continue so that now we, we come to have a joining of youth participation in both activism and in voting.
1: Did I make a mistake by bringing that book up? I'm, I'm reminded of when I first was studying for my master's in history, and we went around the room, they said, name a history author that you liked, and I said, Barbara Tuckman, and the professor took me aside after and said, not an academic historian.
5: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, Putnam's a very respected academic, and um, his book has been the subject of a, of a great deal of scholarship and subsequent work. And so certainly not a, a mistake to address it, but I kind of when we when we start to talk about the consequences of social movements, I always want to try to maybe correct some misunderstandings that people have about engagement, and some of those are about young people. But others of them are sort of about the questions that, that led you to mention Putnam about the consequences of movements. And so back to you your original question, I guess let me answer this in a couple ways. The straight, the most straightforward answer is, yes, there's evidence that internet activism can be effective. And we could talk about tons of different examples where that's true, whether it's talking about corporations as targets of activism or local, state, national decision-making bodies as targets of activism. But we could also take a step back and sort of try to understand what are the models of influence that um, underpin that question? Or, And I don't mean to assume that they underpin your particular question, but let's say when that question is usually asked. And I think when we interrogate those models about how do social movements make impact, a lot of those models were sort of built around observing impact from the 1960s and 70s, which made us come to believe that that's how impact works. But it may just actually be that that's how impact can work, but there are other ways that impact can work too. So, you know, you suggested, for instance, leadership as something that can help increase impact. But I would suggest that one of the things that, that digital and social media are really good at that can really increase impact is they can create surges of engagement. There's a a term that was created uh, by other scholars, but I use it in my own work called flash activism. And the flash there is supposed to be referring to something more like a flash flood. When you think about the power of the damage that a flash flood can create, you're not thinking, oh, that flood matters because the water's still gonna be high in five hours. No, that flush flood is impactful because it is a system debilitating amount of water in a very short period of time. Mm. Well, attention can work exactly the same way. So, a classic model of social movement consequence would be that leadership brings people to have long standing, perpetual push for change, um, something sort of more similar to a traditional flood. But digital and social media can let you have that flash flood where all of a sudden people are just decision makers, targets are overwhelmed by the amount of attention that people are giving them, which can lead them to make decisions that they might not have made through other forms of pressure. And I can give you a a sports example here. So it's probably one of the few sports examples I'll be able to give you. Um, I'm actually, I love lots of sports, but that doesn't make me good usually at sports examples. So there was a petition actually on change.org a couple years ago, started by a young woman who was concerned about sexual violence and by a football player who was also concerned about sexual violence. And what they proposed is that the National Association that is sort of the professional association of high school athletic coaches. That that association require coaches to go through training about the prevention of sexual violence and to understand that it is part of their job to actively try to reduce sexual violence. Now, this is an organization that while probably many of your listeners may know what it is, Most Americans have never heard of this organization. This organization is not usually in the news. It's not used to getting any coverage. When all of the sudden, almost 100,000 people signed a petition within a matter of days about them making a policy, that was flash activism. That was a flash flood of attention. And they said, you're right, we need to agree to do this. And then they began working with uh, different groups, including feminist organizations, to try to come up with training for high school coaches about sexual assault prevention. That is a very concrete win. It was achieved exactly through flash activism because of that surge of pressure. There was a little ship. And it sailed upon the sea And it
3: went by the name of the Golden Vanity As she sailed upon that low and lonesome ocean
1: Skiffle was an influence on the Beatles, and Lonnie Donegan, who you are presently listening to, was the leading practitioner. I'm not an expert on the form, but it seems like folk played fast and with country type instruments like a washboard. It became popular in Britain in the 1950s, just when the four lads from Liverpool were adolescents. The song here, The Golden Vanity, has existed in various forms for about 500 years. It's a story about a lad betrayed after undertaking a dangerous mission for Britain against the Spanish Armada. You see, the captain promised our hero his daughter's hand in marriage if he came back alive, but he won't have this man for a son-in-law. Saying that aloud now, it seems kind of different. It was a Sidney Poitier movie, sort of. We're listening to it because when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about a kind of online activism that involved a boat. The captain asks that we please stay afloat long enough to rejoin the conversation on the other side, and we say, Aye, aye, skipper.
2: Lucky Land Casino asking people, What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
3: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess?
2: Haha, in my dentist's office.
4: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW, Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: There's no predicting how those things will click though, right? Because I, I keep thinking of one of the sillier examples. But to to set it up with a, a contrast, there's a Twitter account, Sleeping Giants. And I think it's just one guy or one guy and a couple of associates. And what he does is he points out brands that advertise on particularly racist programs on fox so he will say why are you i don't know ivory snow advertising on sean hannity that's a very slow process though and he has to call those brands out a lot of times and sometimes he gets action and sometimes he doesn't conversely a few years ago the british say we're putting a new research vessel out there a boat and we'd like to solicit the public's opinion on names and people flood in and the winning name is Bodie mcboatface and so i i wonder how you can sort of transfer the galvanic Energy of silliness to the serious work of promoting change?
5: I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, and I want to kind of play with it a little bit because I think that one of the things that's really interesting about how people use digital and social media is that they often use it to complicate what we have traditionally thought of as sort of more bright line distinctions between culture and politics and i think that while some people in social movements may see this as problematic i actually see it as a real positive for instance there are lots of people who get involved particularly young people in activism through their fandom so there's a group called harry potter alliance which is an organization basically built around the idea that if you love Harry Potter because of the world that Harry Potter is living in, why don't you try to work with us to make this world more Potterish? And so they take on social justice issues that they think that Harry would be concerned with too and try to make change. And they've done things like target companies around fair trade chocolate because so much chocolate involves forced labor and child labor. So you can have one of the things that's sort of new is all of a sudden you can bring what have traditionally been thought of as really distant from politics, Harry Potter, and you can use digital and social media tools to engage this huge fandom community around Harry Potter um, to work for social justice on various issues. And there's lots of examples of that kind of Fan activism. But as we've seen in the sports world, you know, sports is never really actually separate from politics, whether you're talking about the Olympics during World War II, or you're talking about the desegregation of sports teams, or you're talking about um, kneeling at NFL football games, or you're talking about Confederate flags at NASCAR. And the internet and digital media gives, lets people. Have voice and share things and amplify those cultural disagreements. And so, you know, there's a way in which people often think about politics and activism as quote unquote work. It's doing the work. But one of the things that can also be true is working for change can be fun, it can be joyful, it can involve <laughs> teasing, it can involve play. And one of the really neat things that happens when you drop the costs for participation, entry into that field, and you drop the cost of production of cultural things through digital and social media tools, is all of a sudden you open up activism to being just a a beautiful array of tons of different kinds of engagement that maybe people wouldn't have taken seriously, uh, you know, 20 years ago or something. But, you know, actually are important now, have real consequences in real people's lives. And so, you know, I I hope that many people think about the fun or the play that can happen in making change. I mean, making change can also be dangerous and hard. Um, Look at what has happened over you know the last couple months in terms of protests around the country and police conduct towards those protesters we can see that it's really hard too but digital and social media kinds of opens up that space
1: you said that so beautifully first of all i, I chuckled because sports fans very often don't want to see the intersectionality when it comes to sports and and my colleagues and i often hear stick to sports as if such a thing were possible and it's hard to convince people that that siloing is very artificial, that that you're putting blinders on yourself. But I was also was enchanted. There's a pointed term when talking about Harry Potter, because those people who have used Harry Potter as an inspiration are now, at virtually the moment that we're talking, having to experience some cognitive dissonance because J.K. Rowling has taken sort of reactionary stance in terms of transgender women. It's fascinating in that she is getting so much push on it, pushback, excuse me, from the people who are or were her fans. And in a way, it's saying, you know, this doesn't belong to you anymore. The internet has taken this concept that you've created and democratized it.
5: I, You know, that's a great point And it is a huge subject of controversy right now. And, you know, one of the uh, memes going around online is sort of who wrote Harry Potter. And the idea of that is to sort of is exactly as you said, is to say this is now uh, a world that belongs to all of us as readers. Um, And uh, it's very interesting to see the creator of that world basically be held to the standards of that world. And by her fans and many others, be found falling short of those standards. One of the ways that activism has changed over the last 20 years is that while there has always been, I mean, we could find examples in the 70s and 80s, so I guess I shouldn't say always, but let's say pre-internet, there was still engagement with cultural producers. You had actual pickets outside of television stations outside of networks or something but you didn't have the ability to write and circulate fan fiction in the same way i mean you could but it couldn't go as far it couldn't go as fast you didn't have the same way to really be inspired by something and then riff off of it and spread that in the literature when that is done to a political end there's a term for that called participatory politics there was participatory politics, certainly before digital and social media, but the scale of people's ability to engage in participatory politics is now so different that really cultural producers are no longer, you know, sort of on a um, on a throne handing their cultural productions down to an audience. Instead, there is really this active engagement between audiences and producers and you know there are like interesting names for that like prosumption which is a combination of production and consumption and if, if your readers are interested there's a whole host of work on this by uh Henry Jenkins who's at who's at USC and was a collaborator of mine on um a MacArthur funded project called the Research Network on Youth and Participatory Politics.
1: So you're talking about people who feel ownership of something like Star Wars and will in sometimes in very negative ways, but will will speak up vociferously if there's a character or plot evolution that they disagree with.
5: Yeah, but that can exactly. But that can also turn political and that may be internal to the cultural product, like they don't like something that's happening on a show um, because of the political dimensions within the show's script or cast. Um, But it can also be, you know, sort of outward facing in the way that we were just talking about with Harry Potter, where people are asking, like, how do I make my world more Potterish? And then also, how do I hold uh, J.K. Rowling to account for the fact that she's not being very Potterish, that she is attacking a, a group of people in a way that I think most people who are inspired by Harry Potter would not imagine he would approve of.
1: and she keeps digging deeper but it's good that we we mentioned transgender people because I was going to bring them up anyway because I, I think that one of the benevolent aspects of the way the internet has changed the way that we interact is that it has allowed like-minded people who might otherwise be isolated or atomized to affiliate and speak with a louder voice than they otherwise would have. And I really love the transgender voices on Twitter because they have been able to educate people and also defend themselves from all kinds of the uh, of of attacks that they receive in a way that, since in their individual communities, they're probably a very small percentage of that, but together they can be very loud and, gain more acceptance. But I also kind of worry about the dark side of those affiliations. And I don't mean for transgender people, but I mean other groups that may be less progressive. And what I mean by that is now even a highly deranged sociopath can have followers. And I've often said on this program that if the Unabomber had come along a little bit later, he might still be alone in his cabin. But instead of typing up long screeds to send to the newspapers, he'd be doing Facebook posts.
5: Yeah. I mean, It's certainly clear uh, from research that a wide variety of scholars have done that digital and social media technologies uh, help all manner of people take action in politics. And that includes progressive politics, but it also includes far-right politics. Um, It includes white supremacists. It includes people who are nativist. The digital and social media In the same way that it creates an ability for transgender people who may have had a hard time locating one another and building a common voice and community to do so more easily, it also facilitates that for white nationalists. So it it is both of those things at the same time. Complicating that is the role of misinformation or disinformation in Uh, digital and social media today. So, you know, we're watching platforms really grapple with whether they have some obligation to identify misinformation, disinformation, whether they have an actual obligation to limit hate speech or speech encouraging violence on their platforms and how to do so. And that's a debate that's not going to go away sometime soon. And it's probably not a debate that it is a debate that's going to be very complicated to resolve because you rightly point out that digital and social media are great for helping progressive causes. They're also great for for helping very, very right-leaning causes like uh, white supremacy, nativism, et cetera.
1: I've wondered where the balance is in terms of people being radicalized or activated by, and it doesn't necessarily matter which side, but to violence. And then at the same time, I was thinking that, say, in the 60s or early 70s, you had a group like the Weather Underground, which is the radical left terrorist group involved in blowing things up. And conversely today, despite right wing attempts to portray Antifa as an American ISIS, it's a loosely affiliated movement of people with a common point of view. There's no structure. So I wonder if the ability to affiliate under that kind of banner, as opposed to what those former college students were doing in the in the 60s and 70s, has a way. This is a positive way. I mean, of washing out the violence and preempting it by giving it that outlet.
5: You know, I think it's um, it's actually pretty complicated um, because there are lots of ways in which um, digital and social media are being used in really repressive ways, both by governments and by uh, organizations and individuals. So um, I'll give you you know a couple examples at the governmental level. There's a lot of good research showing not just sort of souped up censorship, so censorship that was already happening in countries in print period, you know, in print materials happening online, um, but also in online social media, but the use of digital tools for surveillance. So in some authoritarian countries, you might have designs that basically block sites for some groups of people, but then leave those same sites open for other parts of the country so that you could measure as a government, how much interest is there in these things that we see as threatening, you sort of doing analytics on your population to feed into repressive efforts. Certainly companies are trying to figure out how to, I don't mean weaponize in in an actual weapon, in the actual sense of a weapon, but I mean to make deeply strategic for their own uses, how they can weaponize data to maximize their brand and people's interest in consuming them but also hide away criticism of their brand that may exist online and you see loose groups of people who who use digital and social media platforms to intimidate and harass people so whether that is you know gamergate from a couple years ago last year i think it was there was a group of french male journalists who it was discovered were collaborating to harass and intimidate uh, female journalists. So there are lots of ways in which these tools can be used in, in really rough ways. I mean, swatting using digital and social media is another, which involves sort of tricking the police into using violence against your enemies. So... There are lots of ways in which people have figured out how to use digital and social media in very hurtful ways. There are also lots of ways in which people have learned to use digital and social media in lots of non-hurtful ways or ways that raise the consequences of doing things. So, for instance, you know, if you think about the videos that we see of, you know, what's sort of been culturally now dubbed the Karens online. Like those were people who those interactions probably would have gone entirely unnoticed except for by the people that were engaged in them. But now when people do things like that, there's a, if it's videotaped, there's a real risk that they face actual consequences. I think the New York City woman who um, called the police on the birdwatcher, I think today was in the news that she was formally charged for filing a false report. So there are ways in which the digital technologies can be used to sort of stop things. It would be easier if tools only got used in one way, but they actually get used in lots of different ways, making an assessment of the the balance of their use quite complicated.
4: When a felon's not engaged in his employment, his employment, or maturing his felonious little plans, little plans, his capacity for innocent enjoyment, Set enjoyment, is just as great as any honest man's, honest man's. Our feelings we with difficulty smother, smother. When can stab you, Duties to be done, to be done. Taking one consideration with another.
3: With another.
1: A policeman's law is not an happy one. Ooh. Our second old song of the episode, I mean really old song, not as old as The Golden Vanity, which is 500 years old, but this one goes back to 1879 when it was co-written by Arthur Sullivan and William Schwenk Gilbert for their light opera, The Pirates of Penzance. A very silly affair indeed. This is The Policeman's Song, as recorded by Danny Kay. I introduced, or reintroduced, or re-reintroduced Danny Kay last week, so I won't do that again. But it was the kind of material he could have fun with. Alas, I don't think he ever did the real tongue twister from this modern major general, but he would have been awesome with it. Now I'm going to go look for that. As I said last time, he did, of course, do Tchaikovsky by Ira Gershwin and Kurt Weill. And he also, and this was early in his career, did the frenetic Cole Porter, Let's Not Talk About Loved with a high degree of excellence. What does this song have to do with anything? The policeman's song, what does it have to do with pirates? What does anything in Pirates of Penzance have to do with anything? But in our case, we're listening to it because when we come back from the break to conclude our conversation... We'll be talking about the effects of the internet on policing and protest. I do hope you're enjoying the episode, and you will return on the other side. I mean, what if you didn't? You'd just be stuck on the fade-out of this song. I believe some Eastern religions refer to this condition as being a tuneful ghost. Well, don't you be a tuneful ghost. Just hang on, pass this break, leap over it, and we will see you on the other side.
4: He buys a rattle for his Little son. Little son. Taken one consideration with another.
3: With another.
2: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.
1: videos are, I think, kind of a small-scale version of what we've seen with police footage. And as the George Floyd protests became national, we saw a great deal of police counter-reaction that bordered on or, or crossed the line into police riots themselves, where they were far more violent than the protesters. And it seems to me that the police doing that was almost a last tantrum, because they had lost. And they had lost via this almost tacit passive passive excuse me use of the internet in which as you said things that would have gone unreported or would have happened under cover of darkness are now lit up for everybody to see and there is we talked about the the flash flood before or you did to give you full credit there's this instantaneous referendum is this behavior acceptable and it's just done it's over and I'm not saying that we've entered this utopia where we really will defund the police or that they will all reform their behavior but it cannot, it just literally, barring some mass authoritarian top-down movement, it cannot go back to the way it was because of the, the existence of the internet.
5: I mean, I, I think um, you're right that the ability to document things that are happening is really important, and particularly document through video for a couple reasons. One, videos are so visceral. Like, even if you had read a written report about what happened to George Floyd, Seeing that happen is so much more visceral to many people, so much more motivating to action, and also feels very clear cut to lots of people to watch that video and see what happened. And I can think of, because one of the things that I study is the repression of social movements, so broadly how state and private actors try to control and constrain protest. So as somebody who's studied how police behave towards protests for a long time, those videos were reminiscent of things that we've seen before but, but haven't been able to document in the same way that we can now. And that's really powerful. I, I, I hope that your optimism about the fundamental level of change that that will bring is true. I think that there is still a lot of pushing ahead on how to do that because as with many things in social life, The devil is in the details and so even if there is the sort of as you put it instant referendum that this behavior is wrong and can't be tolerated anymore how you go about fixing that is still hotly disputed and whether we come up with social ways to to fix that that are successful is is still waiting to be seen
1: well when we talk about repression of protest and i'm sure that you'll have a better grasp on these statistics than I do, because I'm just kind of vamping here. But things have changed in the sense that, say, and and this seems like a timely reference at the 68 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, cops were on television just thrashing the hell out of all kinds of demonstrators. And if I recall the polling that I mean, not firsthand, but from my reading that the majority of people said good on those cops. The demonstrators got what they deserved. And of course, then Nixon went on and edged Hubert Humphrey in the election. I feel like from the polling that we've seen today that the majority now disapprove. So there has been some evolution in the last 40, 50 years.
5: I I don't want to minimize the amount of controversy that existed around policing practices both generally and for protest in the 60s and 70s, there was actually a heck of a lot of pressure put on departments. This was really the period in which um, civilian review of police became a major issue with lots of people pushing for it and police departments, and then newly created police unions pushed really hard against civilian review. Um, So I don't wanna minimize the extent of controversy that existed in the 60s and 70s about police conduct but i i do hope that you are correct that there is much less toleration for police violence today both generally and particularly against people who are using their first amendment rights i mean you know we did see you could go online right now and search for videos of NYPD just really beaten people up quite badly as they cross streets. Uh, you could find lots of videos of journalists being attacked as they were identifying themselves as media, wearing identification as media, legal observers being attacked, despite wearing the standard lime green shirts of legal, legal observers and other indicators of being legal observers. And so, you know... I do hope that you're correct that those videos and being able to see that is able to sustain enough outrage about that conduct to really create change.
1: So we're getting very near the end here. And I did want to touch on something else that you brought up, which is fake social movements. And recently there's been coverage of, and and I'm sure that some left-wing sites do this, so I, I don't want to necessarily lean all on one side, but... Very specifically, right-wing sites on Facebook seem to have some kind of cooperative program going where they will mirror each other's content. And so one site with not a huge audience will have their content essentially syndicated and reflected by all these other ones. And that creates almost a fake social movement, or at least a a fake kind of dissemination and traffic groundswell. And then, you know, a week later, suddenly the, the president of the United States is standing, on a podium saying, many people are saying, which is an expression that I've come to really, really dislike. Are legitimate voices for change subsumed in all that noise more than we think they are? Well,
5: I mean, that's a real tough issue because we have seen in various countries, and one might argue at times in our own, attempts to drown out legitimate calls for change through taking over hashtags, through things as sort of banal as putting lots of spam on hashtags so that, you know, the hashtag becomes useless. So we do see both in the U.S. and also abroad instances where people try to drown their opponents out in various ways. We see the amplification dynamics that you talked about um, including the amplification of false material that people, certainly the creators of it knew were false, whether or not all of the people amplifying it and sharing it know it's false. And there are those dynamics. But, you know, the the crazy thing about technologies are they're usable in those ways by anyone. So then you also have, you know, Korean pop, K-pop using the same kinds of tactics to, make white nationalist hashtags useless to white nationalists. To There was the Dallas Police Department, I think it was, had a tip line that they had set up. Um, and uh, K-pop was pretty upset about this tip line. Um, they thought it wasn't, it was sort of trying to target people who had participated in Black Lives Matter and other protests. And so K-poppers flooded this tip line with, you know, their favorite videos of K-pop stars and essentially made that tip line useless. So the complicated things about these technologies is they allow people to use them for a whole variety of purposes. And that can be someone making, trying to drown out a progressive cause it can be someone trying to drown out white nationalism. And a really important part of this dynamic that is hard for a lot of people to gauge is how much foreign interest is involved in this. Um, I mean, and also how many bots are involved in this. So it's not necessarily that there's as many humans out there engaged in drowning out things as there are bots out there that are trying to drown out things on behalf of their creators. And that makes it an even more complicated world to understand and interact within.
1: As we wrap up here, I just wanted to applaud something that you've said elsewhere. I happened as I was preparing for this to see your Twitter account and that when this week the government, ICE, specifically said that graduate students or foreign students, I should say, who did not have in-person classes had to leave the country basically for no purpose, as far as I'm concerned, other than that they could say it, you offered those students who would be potentially subject to that offer a or that order, excuse me, a an opportunity to do in-person classes, even at risk to yourself. And, and I thought that was just incredibly admirable.
5: Thank you. I mean, I think if, when I read the news about the ICE rule, just at a very human level, i just felt so sad for these students who have worked so hard and are contributing so much in their classrooms and have the potential to contribute so much to the world and so just at a basic human level i was really hurting about that announcement and then i saw a tweet from a faculty member at uci who said you know i'd be willing to do an independent study with people affected by this and i thought you know, So would I. And I really tweeted it out just, you know, out of a heartfelt feeling of this is one of the things that from studying the Internet, I can tell you the Internet is good at, which is sometimes people working together can route around bad decisions. Of course, I would you know, I don't want to discourage people from please, you know, if, if it's if you're moved to contact your congresspeople about this, you know, sign petitions do the things you would normally do. But I think at a personal level, I also feel like I need to do the things that I can personally do to cause change. And that is sometimes outward facing, contacting my administration, contacting my elected officials, signing a petition. But it's also saying, if I personally can directly be a part of this solution, I want to personally directly be a part of a solution. And we'll see. I mean, hopefully there is some other, you know, some resolution where it's not individual faculty having to offer independent studies that changes this. But if it is, you know, I'll have my mask on and (laughs) be outside and (laughs) be teaching whoever I need to teach.
1: I think the best kind of civil disobedience is not necessarily the Thoreau kind of just saying, hell no, I won't pay my local taxes, but actually doing something that will directly, tangibly benefit somebody my guest has been the university of arizona professor dr jennifer earl the book is digitally enabled social change activism in the internet age jennifer thank you so much for spending this time with me
5: oh i really enjoyed it thanks so much for inviting me
3: hello infiniteers it's time for the end credits podcast within a podcast i'm sarah goldman your host masked for your safety you can follow Dr. Jennifer Earle on Twitter at Prof Earle. Your host dwells at go Stephen goldman. Why go Stephen goldman? Because he doesn't go anywhere without a book. You thought I was going to say mask, didn't you? You can write us at InfiniteInning at gmail.com. And there's a Facebook group. Go to Facebook, search Infinite Inning, knock, we will let you in. And then if we had an official reading list, that's where you would find it. You can support the show and my college education by visiting patreon.com slash theinfiniteinning. We thank you kindly. Finally, should you find yourself stuck at home during a pandemic, please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe. Or review, subscribe, and rate. That would be different. Our theme song, which you are listening to now and have been hearing throughout the episode, is a co-composition of Stephen Goldman and Dr. Rick Mooring, who reminds us not just to demand the facts, but peanut whistle for the facts, and you'll be prepared when a sinister elephant in a trench coat follows you home. Intrepid listeners, your podcast has concluded. Please gather all your personal belongings and rejoin us next week for more tales and discussion from The Infinite Inning.